Imagine taking a $6,000 investment and turning it into a $4 billion a year mortgage company. Well, today's guest did just that. Dan Eisner is the founder of True North Mortgage, a Canada-wide broker and lender that is a unique model that's combined storefronts with online marketing. And this is the first time I've had a chance to interview Dan. And some of the things we talk about, we talk about how he actually got a deal on the Dragon's Den, shook hands, and then the deal didn't go through. And he's glad it didn't in the end why the Greek defaulting on its debt was a catalyst for him to start his own lender, Think Financial. We dive into some of the mechanics of him actually building that, why innovation is so difficult in the Canadian mortgage marketplace, and how Dan is launching a new mortgage marketplace where investors can invest in small slices of insured and uninsured mortgages called Morcado. This is a fantastic conversation. I had a lot of fun. Oh, and he also talks about how his wife hates his car and hasn't been in 12 years, at least the one car that he drives. It's a lot of fun. I hope you enjoy it. If you do, please share this with the other mortgage brokers that you know. I think this is a great way to get insight into one of the great competitors that's in our space. Before we jump into this episode, I want to give a shout out to our title sponsor, Finmo. Finmo is a Canadian mortgage application, document collection, submission platform designed specifically for Canadian borrowers. It's very easy to use. It's got some cool features like smart docs. It deals with documents your client needs. It's connected to the Lender Spotlight, which has got seven or 8,000 different lender guidelines and now has AI baked right in. Check them out at lendesk.com slash Finmo and check out this conversation with Dan. Hey, Dan, welcome to the show. Hi, Scott. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, we've been talking about doing this for a long time, so I'm excited that we can finally chat. But because we have never done this, I do want to kind of start back at the beginning. And maybe before you do that, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got into the mortgage business before I get into the rest of my questions. Oh, well, there's a saying, you know, that some people choose entrepreneurship, others have it thrust upon them. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of in the latter category, to be honest. I got uh, laid off and fired a lot. And as a lark, I guess I took my mortgage broker course 20 years ago now. It's actually, I first got licensed in 2003. Hmm. And so you got laid off and thought, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll become a mortgage broker. But you've built a company that is different than what most people do when they become a mortgage broker, which we'll talk about. Was that the plan right from the beginning or did that happen by accident? No, actually what happened was a buddy of mine gave me a job and unfortunately that company went bankrupt about a year later. Nothing to do with you, right? Not your fault. You didn't cause that. No, no. Yeah. I was doing commercial mortgages at the time or trying to do commercial mortgages at the time. It's probably a better way to say that. So I ended up actually buying the assets out of bankruptcy mm -hmm. virtually. For $6,000, I bought the website, the phone number, and a big box of pens. Uh, <laughs> the name of that company, by the way, was True North Mortgage. Right. Well, that's awesome, actually. So you took a $6,000 yeah. investment and turned it into like what did you have today, the juggernaut of online mortgage companies. And so how long from that $6,000 investment till you ended up on Dragon's Den? That's the first time that you popped on my radar. I was like, what sorcery is this? And this mortgage guy is on here and he's trying to get money from the drought. I was like, oh, first off, I was a little jealous because I was like, why didn't I think of this? I was jealous. I'm not going to lie because I was like, that's creative. But then I was also like, he said no. So like, tell me about how you got there and we'll go through the rest of it. Well, one, that was 2003 and I didn't want to be a mortgage broker. I really didn't. I have an MBA. I don't want to be a mortgage broker. And so I tried. I tried to get a job as a consultant for two or three years there. And then eventually I gave up and then said, okay, well, if I'm going to do it, I want to do it right. And that's going to be opening a store. Right. And that was our rate screen and a store people can walk into, which is really kind of a half breed between a mortgage broker and a bank. So it's right. really not that innovative. I mean, banks have been doing that for years. Yeah, but did years. you have like a ticker, like a stock ticker that would kind of do the rates or how did you do that? 
Well, at launch, it was actually just a PowerPoint, and I would just change it whenever rates would change. Right. Okay. So very like basic. Yeah. Now it's all kind of automated, remote access, and everything else. But we still have those rate screens in all our stores. Okay. The Dragon's Den. Yeah. Two thousand seven. Yeah. You know, it was filmed in May of two thousand seven. I didn't turn them down. Well, not on the show, anyways. We did shake hands on the show, and then kind of nothing happened for. A period of there. They did their due diligence in the month of July. And then I had a really strong summer because that was the first summer we had. I had a really strong summer. And so essentially they were valuing True North at less than cash value, if you know what that means. Well, explain to me if somebody's listening to this and don't understand. Sure. I think I understand. But. Sure. So like the valuation they're giving me was essentially $250,000. So they're saying your company's worth it. But you have that much in the bank. And I literally have more than that in the bank. So it's clearly right. So then it's like, why would I? Yeah, yeah. that's insane. Yeah. And uh, so it didn't make sense to take the deal. And so we did. I didn't. And then it aired anyways in November of that year. And the rest is history, as I say. Well, that valuation, there's no way that it could have made sense. I can't imagine there was a scenario where that would have been a good deal. But was there other upside benefits to being on Dragon's Den? Did it create some brand awareness? And like, because I got to think there's some validity to that. Well, I made all the Scots jealous. So I got jealous. I was like, why didn't I think of it exactly? The Scots. <laughs> yeah. So I made all the Scots jealous. But other than that, you know, website got really busy after it aired. Mm-hmm. But unlike other products, like not everybody needs a mortgage right now. Right. So you got a lot of people who learned about True North, which was good. But the actual additional volume, it's really hard to place a number on it, but it wasn't make or break. It was good. I like the additional volume, but it wasn't make or break. Right. And I think a large part of that was because you saw it, that seemed really good and you go to it and do you remember in a year? Do you remember in two or three years when yeah, yeah. comes up for renewal and mm, all that stuff? Right. It's not like you're selling like an indie bed where you're like, oh, I got to have this and I'm going to buy it because yeah. versus yeah. a mortgage rate has these life cycles. So do you recall like when you started out 2003, you decided, okay, I guess I can't be a consultant. I don't want to be a typical mortgage broker. I got to actually make a business out of this. Do you remember your growth trajectory? Do you remember some numbers? Do you mind sharing kind of, because I know that you guys are pretty big now, but if you're cool with it, I'd love to kind of have an idea of what you guys went through in those early years compared to today. I remember it was me and one other employee. And I remember those early days. I had these brochures outside my door and I'd literally count how many brochures were taken every day. And I had an Excel document that showed those how many. And then at the end of the week, I would tell my dad, this is how much revenue I did this week. And I always track it like crazy. That's evolved. I kind of got to 100 million pretty quick. Like it was in 2007 that we did 100 million. Right. But I was working hard because I was doing the deals, right? It was just me and one other person. Right. I remember one day in 2007, I was really sick and I had a fever and I would like lie on the floor underneath my desk. And then when the phone rang, I'd pop back up, up, answer the phone, take the application and then hang up and then lie on the floor again, the phone rang again. But pretty quick, we got to 100 million. Right. Okay. And then the storefront model, you guys obviously have a great online presence. Storefront model is still part of your business plan. And like how many storefronts do you guys have now or like these retail sites? We have 12 storefronts Mm -hmm. right now. We are actually going to open a new one in Square One in Mississauga in, in March. Yeah, I thought you were going to say Kelowna. I was like, no, don't you dare. I was kidding. are <laughs> too small of a market. So do you find the storefront, so if you were to compare the business from your online efforts and your storefront, like do you expect the storefronts to be 20%? It is hard to say because I remember once walking into a store and I saw that the client had printed out, I want to say, a rate supermarket page. Mm-hmm. He had 
all the brokers listed. He had our name circled and he was in the store. Right. So is that a right supermarket lead? Was that a store lead? Yeah, was that an online? Like, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, what, I don't yeah. know, right? Mm. And just seems so many clients, they want all of it, right? Like they want to be able to order online, you know, Best Buy. You want to order online and return to the store, right? Like, right. So roughly, it looks like one-third, one-third. So you got one-third old clients coming back for more. Mm-hmm. You got one-third walk-ins. And then, of course, one-third online. That seems where the numbers seem to be lying. Right. Okay. Really, a lot of more companies now are using just like almost like a version of Amazon, but then you can either pick it up at the store, you can return it to yeah. the store, ship it to your house. And they want it all. They want a place that they can go yell at somebody if they wanted to. Right. Or like in Edmonton, when we opened the store in Edmonton, and Edmonton is very similar to the Calgary market, but when we opened our Edmonton store, we saw our volume in Edmonton increase fivefold. Mm-hmm. And it's not because they were all walking in because we didn't get that much walk-in traffic. Okay. But clearly what happened was is Edmontonians felt more comfortable applying online, knowing that we had a physical location. Right. What year was that? You're testing my memory now. Well before COVID, probably 2017, 2018, something like okay. that. Okay. So you got to hundred million. So who owns you? Like, are you the owner? Is it like, you're not public trader, right? I think you are. No, no, no. We are the largest shareholder. Okay. So you're a private company basically. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So do you guys share or you went a hundred million, you must have gone past a billion now, a couple of billion a year. Is that something you guys talk about? Oh yeah. We're close to 4 billion now. 4 billion a year. a year. And so how's this year compared to like for you guys? Cause you have, you know, it's again, slightly different model and there's less transactions. What are you guys noticing compared to last year? Tough year. When I look at it and how we're going to end the year, we're probably going to be down 15 to 20% of volume. It's probably right. where that's going to land. This is what I've found. I mean, I've only started running a brokerage not that long ago. So I'm, this is a whole new game to me, but like the dollar amount per transaction is down. We tend to be sending more and more like shorter terms. And are you noticing that as well? Absolutely. I mean, everybody wants a three-year rate for a while there. Now they're back to bearables, yeah. but three-year rates. And of course, you know that we get right. paid less for that. And So even though volume is down 15%, your net income is down because of the different types of, but the thing is those transactions will turn sooner. Hopefully you'll get more business in three years and it'll yeah. be good long-term, yeah. but not in the short term. Yeah. And that's particularly true for our rate relief six-month product. Yeah, I thought that was very clever, actually. So that leads me to my next thing. So yeah. tell me about what made you decide to launch Think Financial. So it's your own in-house lender. Because I've talked to other people that have brokerages similar to yours, large ones. And I'm like, why didn't you do it? And they're like, dang it, I should have. It's not easy. So tell me about that. When did you decide to create Think? And were you thinking when you did it? See what I did there? Yeah, <laughs> I appreciate that. That's why we chose our name, actually, just so you could do that. Yeah. So it all actually all goes back to Greece defaulting on its dad course, mm-hmm. like everything else. All roads lead to Greece. Like I've heard that for centuries. <laughs> it, uh, all roads lead to Rome. Isn't it Rome? But yeah, yeah, whatever. They conquered Greece. So close enough. So Greece defaulted on its dad. ING Group Europe had lent the Greek government a lot of money. Were you guys a big ING supporter? Because I used to like them a, a ton bit. back in the day. I was kind of de- a little bit sad when they left. I was jealous when you went on Dragon's Den and I was sad when ING left the broker channel. You may have been jealous, but you weren't as sad as I was about <laughs> ING leaving the group. I guarantee you that. We were very large with ING. We actually were originating more mortgages for ING than ING was originating themselves. Right. And ING Canada got sold to Scotia, as you know, and effectively shut down. Yeah. And then we had a very strong relationship, working relationship, trusting relationship with ING. I mean, the traditional mortgage broker lender relationship it is somewhat adversary. Like you sit across the table. Mm-hmm. Are the brokers trying to pass a fast one over on the lender? 
the lender's job to figure that out. You pay me more, I pay you, whatever. It's more adversarial. And we kind of got past that with ING, and there was magic to be had there. And so we looked to replicate that with another lender. We were kind of unsuccessful, or just generally unsuccessful on that front for a couple of years. And then so 2014 is when I kind of sat down and said, okay, well, you know, if you can't join it, I guess, build it, I guess, right? Like, Right, yeah. And, you know, there's the NHA Lender Act, and I pulled it up, and it's only a couple pages long, and I read it, and I said, okay, I can do that. Right. All that being said, it took two years. So from like first, okay, ING's going away, you tried to figure out if you could replace that relationship, realized I'm going to build my own lender, and then it was two years basically from beginning to end to be able to actually get approved and everything with CMHC? That CMHC was a very frustrating experience. Right. As I heard is for Rocket Mortgage and anybody else who's tried to go through that process. It's bureaucratic experience, nothing else. Right. You're right. It's so you have to have the $5 million in cash. You have to have your underwriting policies. You have to get at least two banks to agree to buy your mortgages and have those contracts in place. Right. Because you're basically, you're bundling them and selling them, right? So then they're picking up the paper in the back end. Is that correct? Uh, there's a few different models there, but more or less, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you need those takeouts, right? Like, obviously, we don't sit on all those markets. Right. Okay. And then, so do you guys service your own loans? Or is that something you haven't built into your program yet? We do service some of those mortgages. Right. Okay. And then did it take long for that to actually start to be worthwhile doing? Like, so you said two years to get set up. How long? I mean, the one great part about your model is that like with you put independent brokers and you say, use this lender, they're like, I don't feel like it today, like herding cats. So you have a bit more control because of your model. Did it take long for your think financially? Yeah, but not that way though. Like there's never been an edict around True North that you have to use our Think Financial. Right. Never. But with the rate combo product that serves the client the best, and if that happens to be Think, it happens to be Think. Yeah. Now, because we have so much knowledge of what brokers want, are we able to create better products and everything else? Quite likely. I mean, one of the things that we are able to do is we create a term sheet that can pay anywhere from zero to 400 basis points. Right. And the broker can pick whatever rate they want. Okay. Now, that's not just a term sheet that comes in a piece of paper, though, right? That's a complicated term sheet. Right. So in that way, we're able to provide the broker a much more coherent and all-encompassing solution, and thus they choose us. Right. Okay. So if a client walks in and says, hey, you know, I want a rebate or any closing costs, whatever it is, you say, okay, well, here's $2,000 in closing costs. I'm going to charge a higher rate to offset that. Yep. And it's easy peasy done. Right. There's no, like extra process to create a cash back, a rebate, and then send checks. And, and it's all on the committee. So do you find that that's something you guys use a lot, that people will use some version of a cash back? Or is it primarily they just focus on, give me the rate? Give me the you, rate. Would you, yeah. yeah. Because ultimately, they're still yeah, paying for it. Exactly. So like, it's not a free yeah, lunch. That's right. Okay. So what percentage of your business do you think would fit within that bucket of Think Financial? When we look at our volumes historically, about 50-50. Right. 50 go to our own lender, and then we broke the right. other 50. And so how difficult is it to innovate? You came up with this really cool six-month product that I hadn't seen anybody do. Yeah. I'm sure they've been out there, but I haven't. And I was like, oh, that's clever. So because you're working within the sandbox that's very defined. And so how hard is it to actually innovate within that sandbox? Ah, innovation in this mortgage industry is very difficult. I mean, given OSFI rules and CMHC rules and regulators, and I mean, even this Mercado that we're going to talk about later, you'll see that there's a lot of regulations we need to follow. You have to think all the way through from origination 
to funding, to renewals, to how do you pool this mortgage and what are the pooling requirements of these mortgages. We're going to relaunch our open no commitment mortgage next month as well. And there's a lot. You have to have agreements across the spectrum, all the way from our banking partners, pooling, servicing, and approvals. And right. Yeah. I can imagine because of you're using other people's money, any lender, insured lender is doing, they've got to be happy, but then it's got to make sense operationally. It's got to make sense for the person that you're paying. There's a whole bunch of steps. When you decided to create Think Financial, did you just sit down and come up with this on your own? Did you find smart people to help you? Like, I'm curious about that because I got to think like, maybe you've just figured it out, but I don't know. That's not how I'd solve it. I'd probably want to hire somebody that has some depth of knowledge in it. But what did you end up doing? Scott, whenever you have a big problem, whatever it is, I want to build a house, whatever the big yeah. issue is, the solution is always the same. You make a list of all the things that need to be done. You break down that list of things that need to be done into bite-sized chunks and you just start checking them off. That's literally what I did. I just had a big mm-hmm. list of a hundred things that need to be done. Sometimes I'd add more and I just started checking them off, check them all off. And then all of a sudden you're a lender at the end of the day. So there were aspects that I got you know, legal advice on. There's aspects I got pooling advice on. There's aspects I got underwriting advice on. There's no one person that I said, make this for me. Right. And I think that'd be a mistake too. I mean, because I think what's really been missed by some of these people who said I should have been a lender. Yeah. Becoming a lender was the start of the race, not the end. Right. Okay? There is so much to being a successful lender that I've learned over the last six years seven years now to be in a successful lender that I didn't even ponder at the time. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. And the thing is, they always say you want to understand your business from A to Z. One of my heroes in business yeah. is Sam Zen Murray, who created a company that ended up taking over United Fruit. And he was a small little banana seller and the guy was a billionaire, like poor Jewish immigrant and became like a you know billionaire. Do you know it's because of him? There's Israel today. Yeah, I know he helped fund Israel. Yeah. I heard of that actually. Went yep. to the UN and the first time when- So you know who he is. So yeah, you know who he is too. Yeah. Yeah. He, and it, and okay. it failed. Yeah. Okay. The boat failed. Yeah. And then, so he took it upon himself to go all to South American nations and convince them somehow. We don't really know exactly how he convinced Probably them. Probably bribes, but who knows? Like maybe. Probably money. Probably money. And <laughs> that swung the vote on the second vote they had at the UN. So he was a big reason why Israel even exists today. Huh, that's interesting. Jewish immigrant, yes. Yeah, love that story. There's a great book called The Fish That Ate the Whale. You've probably heard of it. I've read it, I've yes. read it twice. Love the book. So he says, you should understand your business A to Z. It doesn't mean you're going to do it all, but if you don't understand the whole business, then you're really missing out. And so that's what it sounds like with you, with this lender, you understand it A to Z. This means that if there is an opportunity to innovate, you're going to be able to see it because it's very difficult to do if someone else has the whole yeah. process and you have to come in and like, I often you know, tell uh, people I work with, my superpower is that I personally have brokered a thousand mortgages. Mm-hmm. So I don't need to ask a client whether this makes sense or not. Like when we create a new commitment, I don't need to go in front of a client and say, do you understand this? Because I a thousand times was right. presenting commitment letters to clients. And so from that origination point of view, I don't need anybody right. to tell me what the experience of a broker is. I don't need anybody to tell me what that is like. And so I know intrinsically what brokers want. 
I know what clients want. Now, on the back end, the funding side, I've learned a lot over the last few years, and I'm always trying to try new things. And mm-hmm. I mean, little things like how do you do a blend and extend? Okay, well, how do you do the rate on a blend and extend? Yeah, okay. I used to love that with ING. ING had a great program for that. Okay, so you have a port, okay, and there's extra money. And like, so you know, there's 12 different kinds of ports. No. And you have to have a system for all 12. There's a port with a gap. There's a port with an overlap. There's a port over a month end. There's a port increase. There's a port decrease. And then there's a port with a gap with an increase. And there's a port with a gap with a decrease. All of these have ramifications. There's a port where the old mortgage is insured, the new one's uninsurable, right? Right. And you have to have a solution for all of these. And you have to have a solution that you can answer what is the rate going to be right. within 24 hours. Because that's what the client expects. They don't care how complicated it is. Yeah, they really don't care. They don't care at all. They're just like, what's the rate going to be? Yes, and, what is the rate and then you also need to do it so that you can still make money and your investor is happy. And yes. like, so there's yes. that aspect too. It's like one thing, they need to get the information, but you need to not lose money. Otherwise, it doesn't make economic sense. Yeah, there's, there's one lender that once I kind of learned all this, went to the lender, a major lender, you know who it is. I said, the way you're doing it, you're literally losing ten to $20,000 per mortgage when you do it that way. Yeah. There, they were just bearing in their costs. They didn't even realize it. I'm like, you look at the details here, you're doing it fantastically the wrong way. Right. And so you would think a lot of these things have been solved, but they haven't been. Things like amortization schedules. There's no standard amortization schedule. Mm-hmm. Every bank uses a slightly different amortization schedule. Every bank uses slight difference for IRDs, but just a per diem calculation. Okay. How many days are there in a year? Well, what do you do with leap years? All the banks have different answers to these things. You have to decide these things. You have to come up with these things. Then you have to drag your partners along with you and say, this is the way I want to do it. This is the way I want to do blend and extend ports. And you're going to have to sign off. I can't rely on you to look at each deal because that takes too long. Mm-hmm. So these are the type of automations that I never even pondered right. when I became a lender. But it's super important if you're going to do you know, a few billion dollars worth of mortgages, all these come up every day. Right. And so you have that solution for them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so I understand that you had looked at doing something in the U.S. We'll talk about that, and then I want to talk about Mercado. So tell me about your U.S. experiment. What did you learn? I didn't do anything in the U.S. Okay, but you, did you look at going to the U.S., or was that like a rumor? That's just a rumor. Okay. Okay, then would you? So then would there be any case where it would make sense for you to do something, or is the market in Canada just, it's not worth the distraction? Yeah, you know, the U.S. market is so distinct and separate from what we do in Canada the experience I would bring would not be worthwhile. Like it just, the way they pool mortgages, the way they originate mortgages, the way mortgages are sold, the terms, as we all know, or 30-year terms rather than five-year terms, there's just so much difference there. I don't see that happening. Right. You don't see that happening. I mean, there's still lots of growth opportunity in the Canadian market, it seems yeah. to me. Yeah. At least, especially when you have a lender, that's a massive advantage. Have you found that having your own lender creates more credibility with your clients or does they even care? Well, my experience is borrowers don't really care. What's my rate? What's my payment? You know, do I understand it? And do I trust the person I'm talking to? Like, if I trust you, then that is less important. But does it help you guys in any other ways? Yeah. So the only thing I'd say there is the lender doesn't sell it, but a bad rep would break it, right? Like, right. so if Think Financial had a bad reputation, it could sink a deal. We'll never make a deal. Like, if someone has a hate for TD. You sell them a TD, it's not going to work. But if they just don't care, then you can sell them whatever lender you want. So it's more about downside negative than it is an upside positive. Okay. Tell me about Mercado. What is it? What's the idea? What problem are you solving? 
very interested in this whole new thing that you're cooking up. Sure. So in this Sierras, we've launched or are about to launch a company called Mercado Trust, M-O-R-C-A-D-O Trust. It is an Alberta regulated trust company owned by True North. And if you go to the website, mercadotrust.ca, you can see that what it is, is it's a way for the average Canadian to use their RRSP funds or not their RRSP funds to buy chunks of individual mortgages. Now, those mortgages can put five grand in this one, 10 grand in that one, whatever they kind of deem is what they want to do. We pull the payments out of the borrower's accounts. We automatically put it into the investor's account, all kind of automated. They can choose from subprime mortgages, so higher yielding, or they can choose from, we're going to probably put some insured mortgages on there as well. And if you think about it, this would be the only way an average Canadian could participate in an insured mortgage. If you called up your broker, you- yeah, not this directly. Yeah, not no. Yeah. Okay, this is very interesting. So I thought initially when you, we were talking before we started recording, I thought this was more of like a subprime. So these are mortgages that are in place, and you're basically looking to clear existing mortgage balances, and then you can put the funds to work somewhere else. Is that what would happen? These are all funded mortgages. Yeah. So as you buy them. Money is in there within about 48 hours. Right. And so you're earning that interest within 48 hours, putting your money into these things. So it's not like we're, well, once it hits the cap, then we'll fund the mortgage. That's not what's going on. Right. So let's say at some point, is there insured mortgages going to be on there when you roll it out? Or is that going to be like a couple stages down? A stage later, yeah. Yeah. And so then this would allow you guys to effectively raise money in small chunks. Am I connecting the dots here? Like this is going to be- No, you're not wrong. We're going to launch with the subprime product I don't know, will investors want the insured? The insured will have lower yields, right? Lower interest rates, Hmm. but obviously come with the government guarantee compared to the uninsured. Okay, so the lender side, I feel like to me is something I'm learning and because I'm interested in it and we're still pretty small in the grand scheme of things. But from my understanding, a lot of these lenders like Canadian First Financial, they would have GICs and people would put money into GIC and then that would be on their balance sheet so they can go out and lend mortgages. Would my yield be better to be able to invest directly in the mortgage than giving the money to the GIC that then gets invested in the mortgage or am I totally off? No, no, that's a good question. So one, a government insured certificate, right? GIC. So it's government insured. Yeah. And if you said like, well, that's my kind of style. I like low risk. Okay. Yeah. You can come here and say, well, I'm going to buy just the insured mortgages, which are government guaranteed as well. Yeah. The yield will be better than you can get on that GIC. And you're not limited to the $100,000, right? You can buy $100 million worth of insured mortgages. Because they've all had insurance paid on Yes, right. So there's no limit. I think this is going to crush. I think that you're going to have a segment of people looking for high yield. And then I think you're going to be a segment of people... I'm not an investment advisor and I don't any part of this, but it's equivalent of a GIC, but pays a higher yield and it doesn't have the limits. Like, correct me wrong, where's the downside? Two comments that, Scott. One, I don't know what investors are going to want. Are they going to want the subprime or are they going to want the insured? I have no clue. Like, subprime... But they can mix it up. Like, let them choose. Very much true. put so much at insured and... Just one little clarification there. Okay. You said you're not an investment advisor. No. But you are a mortgage broker. Yeah. And these are all qualified syndicated mortgages. Right. So you don't okay. need to be an investment advisor. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Okay, so I put money into this, into the GIC. What's the lock-in term? So like if I compare it to investing in a mortgage, am I tied to the renewal date? What's that look like? Or have you figured that out yet? Yeah, I mean, so on the subprime, they're going to be like, call it one-year terms, and you yeah. are tied to that mortgage for that one-year term. You'll see on each individual, you can literally see, you'll say, 
term remaining six months, term remaining 18 months. And that's kind of your indication of how long you'd be stuck with You're that. You're basically getting on the train to the end of the line. Exactly. On the insured side, I don't know if investors are going to want to invest in variables or five-year fix. I really don't know. Okay. That being said, I essentially have an infinite supply of them because, you know, two, $3 billion that we produce. So I kind of have an infinite supply of them. I don't know. Nevertheless, you'll be stuck for five years. Or maybe they want three-year terms. I don't know. I, we're going to try all of them and see which I one. I guess you can experiment on them, yeah. see what they choose, and then yeah. just yeah. match them. And obviously, yeah. if you go longer like a GIC, you're going to get a better yield than if you guys decide to offer the option of a shorter term. Yeah. Another really interesting avenue here is this thing was designed as a platform that allows not just to North Mortgage to put mortgages onto this platform, but allow other cult mom and pop lenders to put their mortgages onto this platform as well, to list them for sale as well. Hmm. So if you're a broker and you have two or $3 million that you lend out kind of regularly, but you're sold out. Okay, you've done it all. You can actually load these mortgages onto this platform. Obviously, we do a lot of quality control there. But you can load these mortgages onto the platform, sell them to investors, get your money back, and then continue lending out. Again. Right. Wow. Dude, I think this is going to be huge. This is genius. What's the name mean? Oh, good question. Okay. So if you speak any Italian, you'll know Mercato means marketplace. Yeah. Okay? And so we changed the Mer to more for mortgage marketplace. I see. So it's a mortgage marketplace where you can... And is there a minimum yes. size that people need to invest? We're going to launch with $50,000. Yeah. As we begin to automate that process, we'll lower it. Does the $50,000 have to go into one loan or can it go across multiple loans? Actually, I think we'll have a requirement that it can't go into right. one loan. We want you to I see. diversify. So you'll, pick, you'll take your 50 grand, you'll put it across multiple, and then over time, that number will go, right? The last kind of technical question on this, because you said it's set up in Alberta. Am I only investing in Alberta mortgages, or is it going to be everywhere? It's an Alberta-based trust company, yeah. but you can be anywhere in the Canada, and certain the borrowers are everywhere in Canada. So, but like, so could it be a mortgage that's sitting on a property in Mississauga that I'm investing in? Yes. Okay, so the mortgage could be in Mississauga yes. and the borrower could be in BC. Sorry, the investor could be in BC. Yeah, exactly, right. exactly. And so you can choose to geographically diversify if you so desire. You can choose, I want the lowest credit scores. You can do that. And I want to pick the ones with the lowest LTVs. You can say, well, I just want the highest rates. You can pick whatever you want. Or you can just spread it around a little bit. Right. Yeah, this is genius. I'm interested to see how this all plays out for you, man. It's pretty exciting. So I know that you like cars. So tell me what are some things about you personally that people don't know? Because I like talking business and I could talk business forever. But what's a couple of things that you do outside of business that are fun? Outside of business, that's fun. I don't know. I do drive. What kind of cars that you like? There's one small kind of car that you told me about that I remember. I don't remember what it was. What was it, this car that you said that you just love these cars? Yeah, and... I, have, I drive around a little Fiat Abart. Right. It's a kind of a souped up Fiat, makes a lot of noise, a lot of fun to drive, standard, that's fun. I've taken to the racetrack a few times. Yeah. It is now 12 years old, but I do not want to give this car up. My wife absolutely hates it. <laughs> that's hilarious. She has, I don't think she's sat in it in years. Right. Okay, so you got this car thing that you're into, this Fiat car session. Is there anything else that you do outside of like cooking up new mortgage ideas? Uh, <laughs> No, I really don't. <laughs> I don't really, yeah, you said one-dimensional like me. I'm kind of terrible that way, actually. Yeah, I know. Yeah, totally, totally. Very one-dimensional. I, I just turned 50, and we had kind of a birthday party for, for the friends. And my son was 
talking to a really good friend of mine, like since grade four, this friend I've known since grade four. And obviously I know his wife. I've known his wife for 20 years. Yeah. And so my son's talking to my friend, Mike, and he goes, you know, Mike, when you were in high school and you and my dad used to make fun of that kid, maybe we were cruel, but I think that kid had autism. Okay. And my friend, Mike says, yeah, you know, back then we didn't really know that term autism, yeah. but maybe he did have a little autism. It's true. Just at that moment, Amanda, Mike's wife, cues into the conversation. And she hears just the tail end. And she says to Jacob, it's okay he has autism. He stole your dad. <laughs> yeah, he's talking about you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then to add insult to injury, Amanda has a master's degree in child education, specifically diagnosing. Right. So my birthday present is finding out that Someone who knows me very well thinks I am autistic. So right. I found out on my birthday I'm autistic. I think this is why you and I get along. So my <laughs> wife is, calls me Scottistic. She's like, you definitely have like, you know, and I, because I have this obsessive side that I'm just, and I don't know how to turn it off. Like I haven't figured it out. Like oh, I got an on and off switch. I don't have a dial. You know, that's more accurate. I can't turn it off. I'm either all in or all out, but there's no like, oh, I'll do this at 50%. I'm like, I don't know what that means. Like, you know, I love mortgages and I love thinking about mortgages and the whole business. I don't see myself so much as a mortgage broker as a business person, to be sure. Right. Okay. It's just, I happen to trade in mortgages, mm -hmm. but I also keep a list on my phone of all my uncommonly held beliefs. Okay? Yeah. And so I'm always kind of against the grain in the mortgage business, but I actually think against the grain in a lot of areas. So I would say, yeah, let's finish on this. Cause that's a good question that I should have asked you. But so what's one uncommon held belief that you have? about something i'll give you one that's related to canada and the market and all that sort of stuff because a lot of them we don't want to disclose <laughs> yeah. publicly that's okay so we all know there's a big productivity gap between canadians and americans and then that's been a long time and it's actually a growing productivity gap and why and there's been so much commentary on why and in my mind it is obvious First of all, productivity is really a function of how effective employer per hour employee is, how productive they are, right? And the way to get an employee more productive is really capital investment. Bigger machines operated by fewer people, more productivity. That is like almost definitionally what productivity is. But I, as a small business owner myself, and I speak to my other small business owners, trying to make those capital investments, okay? Trying to build underwriting software or whatever else we wanted to do, right? We have to go mm -hmm. to the bank and borrow money, okay? Canadian banks are very conservative. I always say they hate losing money. Yes. They're, 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 they're really good at not losing money. I mean, money. I work with banks every single day of the week. I understand their mindset. Zero risk is the only risk, okay? And that's not how it is in the States, okay? And so as small businesses or medium-sized businesses just can't borrow to make the capital investments in order to improve productivity. Just, that's it, the fundamental reason. So as a Canadian, you got to decide. You got to say, which do I value more? Do I want to earn 30 or 40% more, okay? Because that's what productivity does. It drives up personal income, right? Do I want to make 30 or 30% more or do I want a super safe banking system? Okay. You got to pick one. Right. You can't have both. Okay. In the US, banks go bankrupt. Okay. Which makes everybody nervous, but they also make loans in risky situations to improve productivity. Okay. Which do you want? And this is the trade-off and you can't pick both. Okay. Pick your poison. Do you want to raise or do you want your bank never to go bankrupt? That's it. Dues. Right. I've never thought of that connection. That's really good. Well, Dan, this is awesome, man. It was great to chat with you. And uh, Morcado sounds like a brilliant idea. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to seeing how that goes. So I listen and uh, I always enjoy your show. 
Hey, thanks again for listening. And hopefully you feel inspired. I know I was from my conversation with Dan and just how he thinks big and then breaks the big idea down into small bite-sized chunks and knocks them off one at a time. And so thanks, Dan, again, for being on the show. And if you enjoyed this, please give it a share. I'm sure other brokers will find this insightful. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.